The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information about Jason can be found at deroshi-meyer.org. Show of hands, how many people were not here last week? Okay. Bible, a walk through the Old Testament. Okay, it's good to have you here. Walk through Jesus' Bible. Is there anybody that would be benefited from me using that mic? Okay. Two verses in the New Testament that give us clarity that Jesus was using a Bible that was ordered different than our English Bibles. So I just ran myself into a problem here. I have to get my Bible. <laughs> Jesus' Bible had the same books as ours, but they were in a different order. Luke 24, after his resurrection, Luke 24, 44, Jesus said... One second, my computer's working on something too. These words, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, in the prophets, and in the Psalms must be fulfilled. Law, prophets, and then this third category, the Psalms. And nearly everyone affirms that that Psalms is a shortened title for a big group called the Writings, usually. Second text, the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah. And I noted last week that that is most likely the first martyr in Jesus' Bible, and the last martyr in Jesus' Bible. So the first martyr, Abel, in the book of Genesis, and the last martyr, who isn't the last martyr chronologically. The last martyr chronologically is Uriah, spoken about in the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah 26. But Zechariah, his death happened before... Uriah's death, but in Jesus' Bible, the book of Chronicles was the last book in his Old Testament. He had a different order. Chronicles didn't come after the book of Kings. It came at the very end, the very last book, before you turn the page and read Matthew, Chronicles. And 
The last martyr mentioned in Chronicles was a prophet, Zechariah, that Jehoiakim did not like, and they had him stoned at the temple. So, that being the case, I'm going to jump ahead to where we were last week. That being where we're at. Okay, there's the order of Jesus' Bible, as I understand it. The two verses that I just pointed us to told us that there were three parts. You see the three parts up on the screen? Law, prophets, and writings. That in Luke 24 is tagged by the biggest of the books in that last group, the Psalms. And then the second verse told us that Jesus' Bible began with Genesis and ended with Chronicles. The blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah. So, that structure lines up with the oldest listing of Jewish books that we're aware of from outside of the Bible. And it most likely dates from around 175 years before Jesus, 175 B.C., and it's found in Baba Batra. Well, that's the name that's given to the book. And it's part of the Jewish Talmud. So in this Jewish Talmud from 500 A.D., they've got all kinds of books in there. So this is a collection of books that have been written for centuries. And in one of those books, called Baba Batra, we have a listing just like this. A listing that has three groupings, Law, Prophets, Writings a listing that begins with Genesis, ends with Chronicles, and where the third division has Psalms as the most primary of the books after a prologue, a narrative prologue called the Book of Ruth. Now, these books are structured according to chronology and size. Chronology and size. Now, I mentioned last week that of all the narrative books in the Old Testament, the books that tell a story, a true story, of all the narrative books in the Old Testament, only two of them are out of chronological order. So Ruth, in our English Bibles, comes after the book of Judges, because it begins by saying, in the years that the judges ruled. But simply knowing when a book was written doesn't mean that's where it showed up in the Bible, because there was other things at work. In the same way that we know a lot of Psalms, that were written in the time of David, we even know that Psalm 90 was written by Moses. But we don't throw it back into the Pentateuch. We leave it in the Psalter in the same order, and the Psalms are given to us in five books. And those five books, as we're going to see when we get there, matter. The Psalms aren't just haphazard individual books thrown into a big collection that became a hymnal in the age of the Second Temple, in the age of Haggai and Zechariah, Ezra and Nehemiah. There appears to be a very intentional structuring to the Psalms. That every Psalm matters where it's placed. And together, we see a bigger picture and message than if we're just looking at individual Psalms in the collection. So too in the Old Testament is what I'm arguing. So Ruth and Chronicles. Ruth becomes an introduction to the writings. A very brief four-chapter prologue that is ultimately not about Ruth, not about Boaz, but about David. About David's ancestors that were in exile that got redeemed out of Moab through a redeemer. 
And I believe it's placed in the writings as a hopeful book, a positive book at the front end in order to take the dark storyline. So we begin in Genesis. The storyline moves through kickoff and rebellion, nation redeemed and commissioned. Sorry, kickoff and rebellion, instrument of blessing through the patriarchs, nation redeemed and commissioned, Israel getting out of Egypt, government in the land, they move into the land, and God raises up kings, and the kingdoms split due to sin, and at the end of the book of Kings, the northern kingdom of Israel is gone, exiled, the southern kingdom has now been exiled to Babylon. And Kings, the storyline, notice narrative, narrative, the storyline ends with Israel separated from the land, up in the north, in Babylon, but then there God raises up the last Judean monarch. Out of prison, Jehoiakim gets raised up, and all of a sudden there's hope. But that's where the story ends, and the story won't pick up again until the book of Daniel. So there's this window of commentary books in Jesus' Bible. And the prophets, that's what this section's called, clarify first what happened, and then Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah, and the Twelve tell us why it happened that way. Why did they end up in exile? Why are we here, God? You've failed on your promises. And Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah, and the Twelve say, no, God didn't fail at all. He is being faithful not simply to bless, but also to curse, because you have sinned. And then Ruth comes in. And the entire makeup of the storyline changes. All of a sudden, rather than being in a, in a world of death and darkness, where curse dominates and only a little bit of sprinkles of hope, all of a sudden with Ruth, the entire sense of the text gets altered. And we move from enforcement, that is covenant enforcement, to covenant enjoyment. How is it that the people living in this period of darkness who truly hoped in God, what were they saying? How were they making it when suffering hit their life? When God seemed distant? When the world didn't make sense? When kids were rebelling? When adulterers were climbing in on the family? What did they do? How were they to respond? That's what the writings are about. They portray a hopeful message of people of faith who are grounded deeply in the promises of God. And all of these books were to read through the lens of the hope of the Messiah. So, they're in exile here. And Ruth comes in, having been written way back here during the period of the Judges, but it's placed in the positive section in order to engender hope. Hope that just as David's ancestors had been in exile and God brought them out of exile through a redeemer, Boaz, so David's progeny, his descendants who are now in exile, can take great hope that God is still for them. And the last word of the book of Ruth, David. And then we move into the Psalms. And it gives us a lens to read all the songs that are found in the Psalter as hope filled in the Messiah and in the kingdom. How were people making it in periods of intense suffering like Job? They were hoping in the kingdom. How were people called to honor God by parenting well? What is that supposed to look like? 
When you're in an age where darkness is set, you teach your kids to love the Word, to love God and His promises. That's what Proverbs is about. When you're in a world that makes little sense, when you can't tell what's up and down, when you say, God, why are you doing it this way? This is too hard. This is too long. This is too painful. I can't put it together, God. Ecclesiastes says, yes, that's true. This is a cursed world, but we have a shepherd. It might be like shepherding wind to you. You just can't get your hands on it. But know this, we have a good shepherd who's been overseeing everything from the beginning of time to the end of time. Put your hope in him. Song of Songs. How do I do marriage rightly in the midst of exile, in the midst of pain, in the midst of a cursed world where I'm part of the problem? What do you do? You wait for God's timing, and then you see Him birth in you what Song of Songs calls the flame of Yah. That is the flame of Yahweh. That's love. And that alone, when God has sparked something in your soul, is what can hold a man and a woman together in the midst of trial, in the midst of adversity, in the midst of an age where the kingdom has not yet come. And then you move into Lamentations. Lamentations, this book that is filled with tragedy, this book that echoes the day when Jerusalem fell and the prophet is crying out, God, how far are you? How long will you leave us in this trial? Darkness will not last forever. Indeed, his mercies are new every morning. And this morning as I drove in and the sun was shining. It's an ever-present reminder that noon is coming. That's what Lamentations is about. If all we had at dawn was dawn, we would be much more tempted to feel like lingering night rather than the beginning of day. But because we can have confidence that noon is coming, dawn awakens our soul and we can see beauty rather than shadow. And Lamentations moves us in that direction. And so Ruth is at the front. Chronicles here. At the end, Chronicles chronologically takes place before Ezra Nehemiah. Because in Ezra Nehemiah, they're already back in Jerusalem after their exile. In Chronicles, they're not back to Jerusalem yet. In fact, Chronicles ends with them walking through the exile, and Persian King Cyrus saying, okay, for the first time in 538 B.C., 538 years before Jesus, him saying for the first time, okay, the exile's been long. Those who want to go back to Jerusalem, let him go up. So why is Chronicles out of place? Why is Chronicles, I said there's only two narrative books that are out of sequence. And the reason is because if we read Ezra and Nehemiah, we see that the story is not what we expected. What we expected when we read the prophets was that when Israel got back to the land, the king would come. The king from Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, who would put an end to all evil, who would overcome the curse, establishing blessing, giving me hope and help. And in Ezra and Nehemiah, there's no king and no peace. In fact, the enemy is still surrounding everyone. In fact, the enemy is still within because they're battling sin 
still. And God is not on the throne of their lives. Peace has not been established. The presence of God has not returned to his temple. So you read Ezra and Nehemiah and you're like, is this it? And Chronicles comes in to say, no, don't get confused. We're waiting for a greater return, a greater David, a greater temple. And so even though you've returned here, Chronicles ends by saying, okay, now's the time. Let us go up to Jerusalem. And then you turn the page and it says, Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And guys from the east are coming looking for the king of, Jer king of the Jews. Chronology. So all the books in yellow, the narrative books, are the chronological books. And you can read them in this order and understand the storyline. The whole story is captured in the yellow, and it all moves chronologically until you get to Chronicles. And then you, Chronicles is like an echo. It starts all the way back with Adam. With Adam. I mean, it's tough going, the first nine chapters of Chronicles. It's just genealogies. Why? I mean, that's not a great way to hook your audience, right? Why is it like that? Because the chronicler is wanting Israel to recognize what God started way back with Adam, they are a part of. And God has, throughout all of this history of disturbance and brokenness and sin, been preserving generation after generation after generation after generation, all the way up to this generation of people who are hoping in God. Don't give up. Don't give in. The genealogies actually move all the way into... So the genealogies that start Chronicles move us already into the period of restoration. They tell us who returned to the land. But the book itself, the storyline, doesn't get us that far. But what it's doing is saying, you're part of what God started, and He's still doing it, and you're right in the middle of it. Don't give up your hope. And then the whole book is dominated by a positive portrayal of David and of Jerusalem. The story of Bathsheba isn't even mentioned in Chronicles. All the, tw the 20 kings of the north, they're very rarely mentioned. It doesn't go through because they were in sin. They were not giving account of Jerusalem. They had their own golden calves in Dan and Bethel. So Chronicles doesn't want to tell them because this is about the old covenant enjoyed. This is about the remnant and who was living rightly and honoring God the way that they should. Chronology, size, all of the commentary books which are in the middle. So the storyline frames commentary in Jesus' Bible. And by commentary, I mean they're not telling a story. They're commenting on the story. They're giving us words that were being proclaimed in the midst of the story. And so Jeremiah, through Lamentations, are commentary books. And Lamentations is the only one of the commentary books that's, not, that's out of place with respect to size. So all the books in yellow are organized chronologically, whereas all the books in white are first to last, first to last, the biggest books put first. So Jeremiah was not chronologically the first prophet. Isaiah came before him, and before Isaiah was Jonah. But what we have here is an intentional structuring where the largest book that has the most words, Jeremiah, is put up front. 
And then it moves from Jeremiah to Ezekiel, who's the next largest. And then Isaiah's the next largest. And then we have the Book of the Twelve, the Book of the Twelve Minor Prophets. And in the Jewish Bible, they're all one book, all put on one scroll. It's like a 12-chapter anthology. Have you ever read the Minor Prophets as if they're one book? If you were here seven years ago when I first started teaching this class... We spent a whole year and all we did is walk through the Minor Prophets as if they were one book. We'll get there again. It just won't be a full year lesson. Lamentations is out of order. Because what I mean is it's a little bit longer than Song of Songs is. So ideally, these two would have been altered. So I'm a, then I scratch my head and I say, well, why in Jesus' Bible would Lamentations have been at the end of the commentary section? Here's my reasoning. It, I think it, it's at least one of these three, if not all three, of these reasons. Number one, there was a desire to put all the books of Solomon together. And Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Songs are all attributed to Solomon, traditionally. Number two, there was a desire to frame the entire commentary section with the words of Jeremiah. Jeremiah is the author of Lamentations, traditionally understood. And so the commentary section begins with Jeremiah and ends with Jeremiah's voice. But this last one is even more important, but it's related to the Jeremiah note. Jeremiah is the prophet of Jerusalem, the priest prophet of Jerusalem, who lived through the Babylonian destruction of the temple. So he was there at the end of Kings, even though we don't read about him. He was in Jerusalem when Babylon comes in chapter 25 of 2 Kings and overcomes the temple. Jeremiah was living there. He's the first voice. Israel is proclaiming, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, all is well. Jeremiah chapter 7, meaning we have hope because God's with us. We can sin like the devil. But I grew up in the right family line. I'm a Jew. And we've got that big white building right there. All is well. And Jeremiah says, You say the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, and I tell you that Babylon's on the other side of the next hill, and you're about to be destroyed. And they come, and they wipe out Jerusalem. And rather than being hiked off to Babylon, Jeremiah was stuck in a pit in prison. And he's among the poorest of the poor in the land that get left in Jerusalem. So Jeremiah is a voice of the transition between monarchy to exile. And now we come to Lamentations. So when I read this, let me just, one second, let me just uh, note something. So here's our storyline. Law, former prophets, latter writings. That's where the storyline goes. Here's where the, the seven stages that I walked through last week. Creation, fall, flood, which is kickoff and rebellion. Patriarchs, instrument of blessing. Exodus, Sinai, wilderness. Um, nation redeemed and commissioned. K-I-N. G is government in the land. Conquest and kingdoms. And then it's at this point that we get a pause. The pause in the narrative. And the latter prophets and the latter former writings come in. And what I'm saying is right at the break, at the two seams, Jeremiah's voice comes up. Where the story ended was Israel at the very beginning of their exile. 
And then exile and initial restoration is what the latter writings are all about. And so you end with kings, Israel going up to Babylon, and then you begin the latter writings with Daniel, who's now in Babylon. He's one of the Jews who was taken. And his voice begins, and the story picks up in Daniel chapter 1, right where it left off in Kings. And then the story continues. But what frames the commentary section in the middle is Jeremiah and Lamentations. And so one of the reasons I think that Lamentations was pulled out and is not in size sequence, it's a little bit longer than Song of Songs, but it was pulled out, is so that the person who's putting the whole Bible together, the one who puts his final stamp on it, probably Ezra or Malachi, who gives us the Old Testament, gave Jesus the Old Testament like he had it, the one who did that and orchestrated it and organized it, used lamentations as a tool because it's all about exile. It's all about the destruction of Jerusalem, which is where the kings ended. So lamentations becomes a tool at the end of the commentary section to build a bridge back into the exilic context of Daniel. Song of Songs would not have helped us in the same way. Love, 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 exile. Instead, what you have is pain, how long, God, are you still on the throne? That's the last question that the lamenter asks. Are you still on the throne? And you turn and you begin to read Daniel about a God whose kingdom is above all other kingdoms and who is orchestrating history by kingdom, 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 and all of a sudden up will rise the Messiah who will crush all the other kingdoms of the earth and establish global peace. Yes, yes, the king is still on the throne. And the faithfulness that Lamentations puts its hope in. Chapter 3, Lament 3. His mercies are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. And those living in this period say, yes, that's what I need to remember when God seems so far when my family seems so broken, God is still on the throne. He hasn't given up on me. He hasn't given up on my home. He is my God. I will trust Him. And then, I mean, the story's going to end and there's going to be 400 years of silence where there's no prophet in the land, says the book of Maccabees. The last prophet was Malachi. And then all of a sudden on the scene will rise one eating grasshoppers and wearing animal clothing. And saying, don't look at me. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. My cousin. Yes, Jesus. John the Baptist as the last prophet of the old covenant age. Who marks the transition into the coming of Christ. So, narrative, narrative, commentary, commentary, narrative. That covers the chronology versus size. What I want to draw attention to now is the intentionality of God, the intentionality of God in putting the whole, each unit together. What I want to do is say, okay, there's the law, there's the prophets, and there's the writings. 
Is there anything that tells me there was intentionality in the seam, in the seams, when they took that first unit and linked it with the second unit? And when they took the second unit and linked it with the third unit? We're just going to look at the seams, the canonical seams. A canon is a measuring reed or rod. That's the word that was used for a tape measure or a ruler. And the Christian church has called our Bible the canon, that which measures everything else. And so I'll, talk about, I'll use that language of canon or canonical. It means that there's authority here because God gave us His measure of everything else. So we're going to look at the canonical seams. That is the seams between what moves us from the law unit to the prophets and what moves us from the prophets to the writings. Number one, between the law and the prophets. Deuteronomy ends with this vision. Up until this time, no prophet has arisen like Moses who knew God face to face and did unbelievable signs and wonders in Egypt. Up until this time, so Deuteronomy contains the sermons of Moses, but somebody else put Deuteronomy together, stitched it together. And we get his final words. After Moses is dead, we don't know how many years after, the final editor of Deuteronomy says, up until this day, no prophet has arisen like Moses. They were expecting a prophet like Moses. Deuteronomy 18 had prophesied it. And what they're saying is, ultimately, oh yeah, Samuel came. Maybe it's already Isaiah's day. I doubt it, but maybe. Maybe Jeremiah has already risen. But I'll tell you this, no prophet has arisen like Moses. What are they doing? They're hoping in a new covenant. If Moses was the prophet of the old covenant, the mediator that brought this context in which Old Covenant Israel was living, a prophet like Moses would have to be one of the same caliber who would mark the New Covenant that Deuteronomy itself anticipated after the exile when God would circumcise the people's hearts and enable them to love Him like they're supposed to love Him. When they would return out of the north where they had been taken and they would return to God and they would be unified and they would obey Him and they would enjoy lasting fellowship with Him. That experience, an eschatological end times experience that Moses anticipated, Deuteronomy ends by saying it hasn't come yet. That prophet hasn't come yet and therefore we're still in the context of Moses. Now that's where Joshua begins. Tell you what, Joshua 1, this book of the law, namely the law of Moses, shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall what? Anybody? Meditate on it day and night. Then you'll be prosperous and successful. So, Deuteronomy ends by pointing forward. We're anticipating one greater than Moses, but it hasn't come yet. And because it hasn't come yet, Joshua begins by saying, all of your success in the land is going to be by you being grounded in Moses. Moses hasn't gotten trumped yet, Joshua says. So we continue to hold fast to him. Now, we move from Joshua to the end of the twelve. We want to close the prophets and move into the writings. At the end of the 12, what's the last of the 12 minor prophets? Joshua. 
It's also the last book of our Old Testaments in English. Malachi. Malachi ends in two ways. First way that it ends is it tells Israel in Malachi's day, keep the law of my servant Moses. So even in Malachi's day, here they are. Malachi is written at the same time as Chronicles. Malachi at the end of the twelve. He's the very last prophet. He's the last Old Testament voice. But he's put in the prophet section, rightly so, because it's a book about enforcement. God's enforcing the covenant rather than a positive book about enjoying the covenant. But there's still hope. In every one of the enforcement prophets, there's hope that's mentioned in every single one. So here's Malachi at the very end of the Old Testament age, and he's saying, we're still in the Old Covenant. Look back to Moses. Now what's pretty cool is that there's only two places in all the Old Testament where Moses is ever called my servant Moses. My servant Moses. Guess where those two places are? Joshua 1 and Malachi 4. The only places in all the Old Testament. It suggests to me that Malachi is intending that he had his hand in putting all the 12 minor prophets together, maybe even in putting all the prophets together, and he's wanting to echo Joshua 1, to give a frame to all of the prophets. My servant Moses, my servant Moses. Not only that, that's the first thing, the call to keep Moses, the, it points backward, but there's also a note at the end of Malachi that points forward. What does he tell people they're to be anticipating? Or who are they to be anticipating? Anybody? Elijah, the prophet. Well, that's interesting. Because Deuteronomy had ended by saying, you're not anticipating Elijah, you're anticipating a new Moses. And then we move into the history books and the former prophets, and Isaiah, he's only mentioned a very tiny amount in Kings. You hear about Nathan with David. You never hear about Jeremiah. Never hear about Ezekiel. As I said, you only hear about Isaiah in two chapters in Kings. Who do we hear about a lot? He doesn't get his own writing book. He doesn't make the latter prophets list, but we read about him as the dominant prophetic figure in the book of Kings. Who is it? Elijah. Elijah is the prophet in the Old Testament at the peak of all other prophets within the storyline itself. And what was his role? To call people back to Moses. He was a pointer to Moses. He didn't trump Moses, he preached Moses. So now we come to the end of the twelve, and Malachi is not only saying, keep my servant Moses, he's saying, look ahead for a new Elijah. So this is what I come to when I'm at the end of the twelve. What it suggests to me is that at the end of Deuteronomy it said anticipate a new Moses, one who will be at the same level as Moses, mediating a new covenant. And then at the end of Malachi it said, oh yeah, there's also going to be a new Elijah, and Elijah's role is to point to the Moses. And then we get to the New Testament, and what does it tell us? 
Who's Elijah? It's John the Baptist. And who does he point to? The prophet like Moses, Jesus. There's intentionality in these seams, it appears. Now, one last seam. And that is, I, I treat Ruth as a hiccup. An intentional hiccup at the front of the writings because the main book of the writings starts out, it's the longest book. So what's Ruth doing up there? This little four-chapter nothing next to a 150-chapter book. Well, it's there as a prologue, but it's not the first book of the writings. I mean, it is, but it's a prologue, and we're supposed to view it as such. The first book of the writings is Psalms. And how does Psalms begin? Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of all the bad guys, but who what? Delights himself in the law of the Lord. And what's he to do? Meditate day and night. There's only two places in all the Bible where God's people are called to meditate day and night. Psalm 1 and... Joshua 1, don't let this book of the law depart from your mouth, but meditate on it day and night. It's right at the canonical scene. There's, all I'm saying is, Jesus' Bible is not haphazard. That there's, God is doing a work from the beginning, stitching it together programmatically so that we would read it in a certain way. We would read it thinking about the anticipation of a prophet like Moses and the context of the Old Covenant until the prophet like Moses should come. This is, the, this is what people were hoping in. This is what Jesus was reading about himself when he looked at his Bible. So, we've got a narrative and it's offset by commentary. Now, you may have already noticed this, but if not, let me draw attention to it. And that is that our Old Covenant, that is the Old Testament, is structured, Jesus' Bible is structured with respect to genre exactly like our New Testament is. But it, you'll only see it if you follow the order of Jesus' Bible rather than our English Bibles. So notice, the Old Covenant is established in the law. The New Covenant is established in the Gospels. Then what follows is a history of the Covenant. The former prophets give us that history. It's a history of death and sin and violence against God. After the New Covenant is established by Jesus, it's followed by a history. But now it's the Acts of the Holy Spirit of Christ working through His church and bringing life rather than death. And then right at the end of Acts, there's a pause. And we enter in, we leave the story for a moment, and we enter into extensive commentary. Both in Acts and in Paul's letters, the new covenant is being enforced. That is, God's preachers are working in history, giving clarity to God's people how they should live. The end times prophets called the apostles 
are talking to a church that was empowered, whereas the Old Testament prophets are talking to a people who didn't, for the most part, have the Spirit. And that's why the history books are so different. One, a story of massive success, and the other, a story of massive tragedy. And then we move into, at the end of Paul's letters, Hebrews comes. James, 1st, 2nd Peter, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, Jude. More commentary. That's exactly what we have in the Old Testament. The writings, I said, these are positive books, but that doesn't mean that it's easy. No, it tells about real life, the same kind of life that you and I are living in, where cancer exists and where car accidents happen. The same kind of world that we live in where children rebel where adulterers tempt our spouses away from us. That's the world of the writings. And it's the world of the general epistles. A world of intense suffering, of intense persecution. Is God with us or not? That's what you read in Hebrews. That's what you read in Peter. These are the, of all the books in the New Testament, these are the books about suffering. These are the books about persecution. And yet every single one of them talks about joy or satisfaction in our God. That's what will keep you going. That's what will help you persevere, church. Put your hope in God. Count it all joy when you face trials of any kind, knowing that the testing of your faith will develop perseverance and then we come to Revelation the latter writings Daniel through Chronicles the storyline picks up where it left off in Kings it picks up again Revelation's a different kind of story but it's a story nonetheless it's not the same kind of story as the Gospels and Acts but the story that began there of Jesus's covenant establishment and of the church's expansion, climaxes in the book of Revelation. It gives us the picture of it's all going to be okay. God is on the throne, and though the ages are filled with martyrs, the book of Revelation, know this, God wins. And Jesus is for you and not against you. And the day is coming when that future reality will intrude into the present. It will become ours like never before. And we will know peace and the curse will be eradicated all because of King Jesus. That the deliverer promised from the book of Genesis will establish paradise once again and the serpent will be crushed definitively and finally by his church. That's the story. So I started out by talking last week about the kingdom. The kingdom of Christ. If you were to ask him, this is what I came this is what I'm about. I'm a kingdom of God preacher. That's the content of the scripture. It's about the kingdom. How is it given to us? How does God reign over his people in God's land for God's glory? How does he do that? He do, does it through the fancy word in the Bible for relationship. He does it through covenant. And we, as a majority, we have the old covenant and the new covenant. These are relational terms. Why does God do what he does? He does it for his glory. God's kingdom through covenant 
old and new, for His glory. That's why God does everything. He magnifies Himself for the sake of His glory. He's working on our behalf for the sake of His name. A people who would put Him on display. And as we put Him on display, even in the midst of our brokenness, turning to Him, what does that do? It magnifies God, and through that we receive His help. Our pain is eradicated in the hope of the cross, and God is magnified. It's for His glory, and it all happens through Jesus. God's kingdom through covenant for His glory in Christ Jesus. God as Savior is the covenant established. God as Sovereign or Lord is the covenant enforced. And God as the Satisfier is the covenant enjoyed. That's the structure of the Bible. That's what I'm proposing. And I think we meet Jesus this way, working into the Old Testament through the lens that He provided in a way that we, we might miss Him and not see all of Him. If all we're doing is looking at the Old Testament as shelves of beautifully textured fabrics. If all you're seeing is shelves of fabrics and I want to take this one down and I want to feel it and I want to look at the color... That's good. It's there. That's part of the Old Testament. It's a fabric. Every book is like one bolt of fabric. And yet what happens ultimately is if all we do is see a shelf of fabrics, we miss the fact that God has already chosen which ones and He's put them in order and He's stitched them all together to make a beautiful picture. He's created a quilt. And if all we do is look at each square, we miss the story. A story that ultimately points to Jesus. So I took... Um, this is my attempt to capture all of what the Bible's about in something that you could write on a napkin in 30 seconds and tell someone, this is what I believe. I've done it. What do you do? Hi, my name's Jason. Oh yeah, what do you do? Let me tell you. And I draw this. So what we have is a frame. There's a wheel on the outside, and nothing is outside of that wheel. The wheel is about the kingdom of God. But the wheel is held together through structure. There's spokes in this wheel. And the top spokes of the old covenant, and the bottom spokes of the new covenant. And each qua quadrant, what would it be called, a... Trident? I don't know. Um, anyway, there's three parts. Old covenant established, enforced, enjoyed. New covenant established, enforced, enjoyed. And all of the spokes are pointing somewhere to a hub at the center of this world. Everything points to Jesus. Everything comes from Jesus. Everything revolves around Jesus. But it's wrong to say everything is only about Jesus. But he's holding everything together. So I prefer to talk about a storyline rather than a center. And the storyline is God's kingdom through covenant for his glory in Christ Jesus. It's what holds it all together. There's a frame, God's kingdom. There's a form through covenant. There's a focus for his glory. And there's a fulcrum, the person of Christ. 
Hmm. Now I have a whole bunch of slides that say why this is important. We'll stop there. I'm sure some of you are swimming. Um, that's okay. I have a tendency to be much more like a fire hydrant than a dripping faucet. <clears throat> I'm going to start next week overviewing why it's important. I have three or four reasons that I think are very significant. And when I began to read my Bible this way, the Old Testament became less a collection of books and much more a structured, beautiful presentation of the gospel. And I suggest this is the way Jesus was reading his Bible. And I'm encouraging you guys to do it too. So, why this is important, I'll open class, Lord willing, next week with that. Let me pray. Not to us, O oh Lord, but to your name be glory. We want Jesus to be magnified over all. Everything is from him and through him and to him. By him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Through him, all things were made, and for him, all things were made. We as the church want to live for his glory, his renown, make much of him through us. We want to understand your Bible better because that's how you disclose yourself and your will in a way we can understand we see you all over. Your glory is everywhere, but it's interpreted through your word, and you've given it to us, and we praise you for that. Help all of us to have hearts that are ignited more and more toward you, that desire to follow you, that feel less guilty and more hungry for your word when we fail to read it. Help me this semester to articulate well your truth and not allow it to be muddied by man's ideas. Help me to be a good guide and to make good observations and to teach to the heart. And help those who come to receive. I ask you to help because you're the only one who can bring it about. Through Jesus we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason DeRoshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at bcsmn.org. For more information on Dr. DeRoshi, visit online at deroshi-meyer.org. Proclaiming the kingdom and treasuring a God who rules, saves, and satisfies through covenant for His glory in Christ.